This is our second My Dynorama podcast. We're still tinkering with tech and bits of software and equipment, so please do bear with us. This time we're going to be using two condenser microphones at both ends, and I'm hoping to switch to a dynamic mic eventually, because condenser mics do pick up every single extra sound in the room. So we've managed to find this one hour slot in which we're going to squeeze this podcast and hope that no one pulls out the stream and no dogs start barking, because you will hear everything. Software-wise, we've been getting along quite well with OBS, open broadcasting software, which is open source, and it's been very, very user-friendly, especially for me who hates tech. So for our first two podcasts, Socorro is going through her picks of films and documentaries that have brought up issues around black lives and experience that are all available on Netflix, and some of them are part of the Netflix Black Lives Matter program, which has been curated by the platform. Our first podcast of top five picks is available on the My Dialorama website and on all podcasting platforms, including iTunes. And this is all hosted by Podbean, which again has been really user friendly. Now, before I let you kick things off, Socorro, and by way of a quite tangentially related and fairly long winded intro, I would like to talk about a few films that shed light and give context to an issue that's currently very much in the news, which is the current push by Israel to annex the remaining Palestinian land in the West Bank. And the more specific reason why I'm bringing this up is the connection that's been made by many Black Lives Matter protesters and campaign groups between the plight of Palestinians and the Black Lives Matter movement. Where they intersect is around things like police brutality, colonialism and racism. More recently, I guess what is the official Black Lives Matter UK movement has openly and explicitly vocalised support for Palestinians. So in light of all that, I'd like to talk about my own picks of relevant films that I think are worth watching right now to give a kind of context of what's going on in the region. There's an article that I'd recommend reading about it, which is uh, by Tarek Bakoni. It's in the New York Review of Books. So what I'll do is I'll put a link to it at the bottom. Mm -hmm. Right. So basically, the idea is there are pockets of um, Palestinian land left, mainly the West Bank and Gaza. And this new annexation plan would stretch Israeli authority over the rest of the West Bank. So there's been some uproar, but quite a lot of commentators Mm -hmm. have said that essentially the annexation is a formality since the country pretty much enjoys already uh, ultimate control over this entire area. Not to forget that the West Bank is splintered already into pockets of um, Palestinian land and pockets of uh, settler colonies. You know, there was a lot of talk about a two-state solution. If you were to have a state, it would be made up of Bantustans, basically, of small pockets of land that would be connected by tunnels and bridges and private roads and stuff. This article by Tarek Bakoni, which is uh, in the New York Review of Books, is really interesting because it makes a... It gives us a different angle to this. So a lot of people are decrying the annexation plan, but for him, it's basically a way to stop with the disillusion of this two-state solution and finally address the global issue, which is the colonisation of the entire land, really. I'm going to quote a couple of things he says which are really interesting. So even amongst Palestinians, there's been growing disillusionment with how the Palestinian Authority's been 
has been conducting affairs really since the Oslo Accords. What this article calls the PLO, for example, the Palestinian Authority, calls them a security mm-hmm. contra- he calls them a security contractor. That's effectively what they've become. This new framework now that they're operating in means that essentially this struggle for a state has been redefined as a struggle for rights. So he calls this two-state solution, he really calls it a two-state mirage and a way to resist this actual one-state reality that's on the ground. I'm going to quote this bit, which which, um, summarises it quite well. Uh, Rather than settling for symbols of statehood and pockets of Palestinian autonomy, their starting point is Israel-exclusive sovereignty. Instead of seeking a state, these campaigners highlight the values that must underpin any progress towards Palestinian self-determination, whatever form that might take. Freedom, justice and equality. Ultimately, this is what it becomes. It becomes a fight for these rights. Um, Mm -hmm. Freedom, so he breaks it down. Freedom connotes the call to end Israel's military occupation. Justice refers to the demands for restitution that Palestinian refugees seek for their dispossession and expulsion following the formation of the State of Israel in 1948. And equality refers to the demands of Palestinian citizens of Israel to end that nation state's institutional discrimination. So it's like a three-point plan, effectively, to okay. give Palestinians equal rights. Right, so that's to give a bit of context and to, to pinpoint readers towards uh, an article which I think sums up the situation pretty well, uh, even if you're not very au fait with uh, the current news development. In light of that, I wanted to talk about the London Palestine Film Festival's website, which have been issuing films and documentaries for the past few weeks over lockdown, Every week or so, they release a Palestinian film or documentary. And to watch it, you just, well, you go on the website and you can make a small donation via Eventsbrite. And then they send you a link to the uh, film or documentary. Now, the money that you give in your donation goes to a local charity. I've watched a few things on it, uh, which I've really liked. And I think most of what they've been showing has been really good educational material, I guess, for the situation in the region. So even if you don't know anything about it, I feel like it breaks things down very comprehensively. So mm. uh, so this week, two shorts, I guess, one 12-minute short by Jumana Manna. Her short film, which is called A Sketch of Manners, is quite an interesting experimental short. It's uh, based on archive photographs of this masquerade ball that was held by Alfred Rock, who was a businessman, in Palestine and a member of the Palestinian National League at the time. In 1942, at the height of World War II, he just threw this massive masquerade ball. Um, And she uses these stills to to recreate quite a creepy masquerade of her own. It's, It's quite a poetic short and you can read a lot into it, but I think it's quite interesting to read what she has to say about it. And it works more as a sort of piece of video art, I guess. And then there's another short documentary by Lamia Jarege. We follow her grandmother, who was born in Jerusalem in 1910 and then moved to Beirut and so on. So the film retraces her journey and the journey of her sisters. And it combines, again, archive footage, old film footage, combining, you know, documents, photographs, interviews and so on. What's interesting about it is that through these intimate relationships and the director traces the history of the region over a number of decades. Where I'd say I might have an issue with it in terms of something that you watch raw, I guess, is it delves quite a bit into Lebanese politics. But if you don't know anything about the country, it's quite hard to grasp what's going on, what they're talking about. There's very little context given to that. 
But it's still a very interesting piece in terms of looking at just how much that region has changed through one person's lifetime. And it's also a bit of an excuse for me to go back to something I watched uh, <laughs> a couple of weeks ago. Well, no more than that, like three weeks ago, which is Mehdi Flayfil's A World Not Ours, which was also on the website. So A World Not Ours is Mehdi Flayfil's only feature film to date. Uh, as far as I know, he's only made shorts. And it's uh, a documentary, and it's his own personal account of the time he spent in Ain al-Helwi, which is the largest Palestinian refugee camp in Lebanon. It's a very interestingly uh, constructed film because it's not quite chronological. He structures the film around um, the World Cup finals. So him and his cousins are big football fans. And mm -hmm. every summer he'd go and visit them in the camp. And they'd occasionally, when there was a football match on, a World Cup final on, they would all gather around the TV and all uh, party together and support various teams and get, get into fights over which teams they support. <laughs> so they're like his cousin supports Italy and another cousin supports Germany and they get into proper fights over these uh, countries. And what he does is, again... Like uh, previous film I mentioned, he traces the evolution of uh, these people's lives through this camp. Effectively, over the decades, he keeps coming and going. He lived in Dubai for a number of years, then lived in the camp and then moved to Denmark. And I think now he lives in London. So he keeps coming and going. But every time he goes back, his cousins are still there. His family's still there. They can't go anywhere. They're just stuck in this permanent state of quarantine forever because effectively they are stateless. Mm. They're refugees in a country that also will not give them any resident rights or citizenship or anything like that. So they can't work. It also gives you quite a lot of background about the situation that Palestinian refugees have found themselves in because the oldest member of his family is his granddad. And he moved to the camp shortly after it was founded. So shortly after he was um, kicked out of his home in Palestine, he fled to Lebanon and moved into this makeshift camp that had just been set up. And he's still there. You know, he still has memories of his old house. He still, I think he's had, he still has the keys. The, the idea was that all these people would eventually go home and they never do. Another uh, character, I guess, uh, member of his family I don't know if it's right to call him a character but that I felt gave the film quite a lot of weight is his um, one of his cousins Abu Ayyad uh -huh. who's on the Fatah uh, the Palestinian Authority's payroll as I was saying in the article above he grows disillusioned with the Palestinian political authorities and at the end he grows increasingly restless in this camp and he becomes very hopeless about the future and he packs up and leaves and he tries to flee as so many other refugees have done via the Mediterranean and ends up in Greece. And then he's he's based, effectively he's homeless in Greece for a year until the Greek police find him and ship him back out to the camp in Lebanon. So you don't a, find out how they found him, though. Um, well, he's on the he was living on the street, so he was probably rounded up. It felt very much like Jim Henson, right? Jim Henson made this, sorry, a bit of a tangent there, but Jim Henson made a film called The Cube, which I think you may find on YouTube, which is doesn't seem to be well known at all. And it's black and white and it's so utterly depressing. And it's a guy who wakes up in a cube and then keeps trying to get out. And every time you think he's he's out, he finds himself back in. And it's filmed as if it was a comedy and it's actually really oppressive and 
quite disturbing. Horribly, that's kind of how you feel in his case, where that's it. He's kind of back to square one. He's back to this mm -hmm. prison that he lives in. You can still watch the film, I think, on Amazon Prime. Again, I'll post links um, in a little blurb under the podcast when it's done. Two more films I'm going to talk about quickly. There's a 30-minute documentary by Wasim Safadi, which is called State of Siege. And as far as I know, it, it is available to watch on YouTube. It's his own personal account of the community of Syrians living in the occupied Golan Heights. The Golan Heights were occupied by, uh, by Israel. And the people living there, living in a very precarious kind of limbo, where they're not quite, they don't feel integrated into Syrian life at all. And they're effectively occupied as well, so they don't enjoy any benefits that you would as an Israeli citizen. It's a very contemplative documentary, so Safadi very much sits back and lets the people he's talking to uh, provide their own commentary on their situation and, and just talk at length about what, what their impressions are and their life experiences. It's quite unprompted and intimate and it gives you a real sense of connection with these people, so I'd recommend that. The film, I feel, is the best breakdown of Palestinian history since 1948. It's an animation, actually. I think it works really, really well. It's called The Tower by a Norwegian filmmaker called Mats Grorud. And uh, his mum used to work as a nurse in Lebanon. So he lived there for a number of years. He's been there a lot. He knows the area through and through. And he made this animation which revolves around a young girl called Wadi, who's 11 mm -hmm. years old and lives in this refugee camp. And she tells you about herself and she tells you about her, uh, her grandfather, who she's got a very close relationship with. Now, it's called The Tower because it started off, again, as a, as a sort of makeshift camp for refugees that were convinced that they were going to be sent back home in a number of months or years. And no, they're still st very much stuck in Lebanon decades later. So they keep building on top of these um, of this shanty town. It becomes a huge tower block and people are building on top of each other. Children living in Burj al-Barajni represent around 43% of the camp's total population, which is close to 21,000, in addition to 20,000 recent re Syrian refugees adding to the crowd all living within one square kilometre. I found that a very good condensed history of the region. And also, it's just a really nice watch. It's very entertaining. It's beautifully done. And it's very child-friendly, I guess. So Mats Grorud's aim is to try and show it in schools, which he's done so far. He's, it's toured European countries quite a lot and it's done very well in festivals. And again, it's available to watch via um, Amazon Prime, but also he's going to be sending me the exact details of where you can watch the film at the moment if you're in the UK or the US. But yeah, that's it. So that's it for me. And I'll sum up the fix of the week in a little uh, paragraph that will follow the podcast. And uh, and now we find out that none of it's been recorded. I think it's on mute. Oh, okay. oh. <laughs> oh we are so good at this. No, but that's okay. It's a, we're supposed to go through this process. Okay, was that five? Because it didn't seem like it. So I talked a lot about the article. I think that's why. The first two kind of count as one because that's the Palestinian Film Festival offering of the week, but they're two short films. <laughs> then A World Not Ours by Mehdi Flayfil. Uh, we Sam Safadi State of Siege and The Tower by Mats Grorud. So that's four and a half, I'd say. Well, four and a half is good. So I did find a theme with this week, and it was an, an unintentional theme, but it was as I was reflecting and deciding how I wanted to present it. The theme 
And I'm not sure if it's because I'm reading into it because I want to go back and finish my dissertation, but it was black middle class and I'm going somewhere with it. So, but the five that I picked were self-made inspired by the life of Madam CJ Walker, 2020 strong Island from 2017 skin 2019 I am not your Negro 2016 and black privilege from 2019. So the first self-made inspired by the life of Madam CJ Walker. Now I did go back and I learned that Netflix black lives matter collection was created to quote, learn more about racial injustice and the black experience in America with this collection of films, series, and documentaries, unquote. Given that I still don't understand the curation of the films. As I mentioned last week, there are films like murder to mercy, the Centoya Brown story, which wasn't included, but they did include Orange is the New Black. And I'm not sure how a story <laughs> that centered. And, and it's a bit ironic, isn't it? Because the woman who wrote Orange is the New Black, part of her critique was that people care about my story as a white woman and they don't care about the stories of black women. And Orange is the New Black is primarily her story. So I'll leave that one alone. So like I said, I don't really understand how these films were chosen, but I did want to define it because a couple of these films are on that list. So just to give some context to it. What I did like first and foremost is Madam C.J. Walker is long overdue for this type of film. Of course, there's been documentaries, but not a feature film like this. And so Madam C.J. Walker, for those of you who don't know, born Sarah Breedlove, is known for her early 20th century cosmetology business and manufacturing company. And it was unique, or I shouldn't say unique, but distinct for that time because it catered to black women. And she was also known her for, for her philanthropy at, and at the time of her death, she was the wealthiest self-made black woman in America. So personally, I'm in awe of the generations of black Americans born in slavery and their descendants born soon after who came of age during reconstruction and the interwar period. And this is because of their fights for civil rights, their political struggles and their push for education, entrepreneurship and business and industriousness given that they lived through chattel slavery and the rise of Jim Crow and convict leasing. So of course, in addition to the film being in that time period from which is amazing, I love the costumes. We had Blair Underwood in it who looks amazing. And I think he was good in the role of Madam C.J. Walker's husband, Charles Joseph Walker. And I think he embodied this sort of spirit of the new Negro self-sufficiency that was coming up during the time. So I also think, you know, back that time period, you don't really see many films on black life between the periods of 1870 to 1940. It's usually uh, kind of the later civil rights movement, which happened in the 60s. And of course, contemporary films or slavery. And they don't talk about all the things happening, especially during the Reconstruction period, which was directly after the Civil War, which is so important even now, still fighting uh, court battles around the civil rights that were gained during that time, and then you know quickly dismantled. The dialogue was engaging, the story was well paced, and it was over dramatic. But I do love soap operas, so I was there for all of that. I just wanted to though critique the way they contextualized her life and presented black life during that time, which I think was problematic. And I think it has to do with this sort of need for a quote unquote positive representation, which I think actually takes away what could be a positive representation with a, with a misrepresentation just to make people feel better about themselves. Contrary to popular belief in 1910 and like today, the black middle class is not a black version of the white middle class. 
So for the black middle class, it is about status, cultural practices, lifestyle, not wealth and income. And this point can't be overstated. So just like today, you're really talking about a wealthless group. And so there's an overemphasis on their cultural capital symbolism and the occupation that they have. Now, this time, um, what we would consider today to be the professional middle class are the elite group of, well, is the elite group of black people in 1910. So for example, barbers. At this time, a barber would be part of the elite group. So we have to remember, though, this is 1910. So barbers and hairdressers provided services for white patrons. So this occupation was relatively, relatively well paid, given the type of work black people were able to do at that time. It requires skill. And it's the proximity to the white wealthy class that gives this occupation its status. Now, this is important, uh, especially for Madam C.J. Walker's biography, because her brothers were barbers. Not only were they barbers, so they allowed her access into that black world, but they were also her greatest champions and supporters. Her brothers were also members of a church, and her church membership allowed her to be educated as well as her daughter and helped her to cultivate what came to be known as the Madam C.J. Walker aesthetic in her understanding of politics at that time. So when we understand that, we have a greater context for her life. And we challenged the notion of being self-made, which I think is a dangerous myth, given we're talking about a marginalized, wealthless group of people. And it also helps us to understand how black society was structured. And they left out all of this and really made black people chocolate-covered white people, which is a problem. It's also worth mentioning, you know, in this conversation of class, what else they got wrong, which was colorism in the black community at the time. So colorism, and it's also called shadism, is a description of the hierarchy of privilege in the black community that's expressed as preferential treatment of lighter-skinned black people and discrimination of darker-skinned black people. Now, it's important to remember, though, that this is not a system of oppression. This is not racism or white supremacy. So there isn't the power to control the means of productions or jobs. So they tried to do this, though, in self-made, which is what the problem is, right? So in self-made, colorism is expressed in two ways. So first, you have being light-skinned as a standard of beauty. So this is characterized by Madam's rival, Addie, who's loosely based on the real-life Annie Turbo Malone, who was also a cosmetics entrepreneur and reached millionaire status at the end of World War I. So this is the setup for Madam CJ to say, hey, dark is lovely, too. We're going to build the self-confidence of dark women. And in real life, though, she did work for Mrs. Malone. So they were both using concoctions that were common at the time. So there wasn't any sort of unique formula, although Madam C.J. Walker did that as part of her PR. So we can't forget, you know, this is a, an amazing woman. And that's what one of the things that makes her cutting edge for the time, which they downplay in this. It was her marketing, not her actual formula. So... It was her story of, oh, I came up with this formula, ancient herbs from Africa. None of that was true, but that was the power of her PR, right? And they kind of took this as true as opposed to just showing, I think, and they, they think they could have shown something else. So in real life, Madam CJ did work for Annie Turbo Malone. In the film, however, they made it to where that character refused to let Madam C.J. Walker work for her because she said, people aspire to look like me, light skin, long curly hair. They don't aspire to look like you. So someone like you can't sell my product. 
And this is a total mischaracterization of colorism within black society at that, that time. So there's a difference between discriminating against someone saying, you're too dark to be part of my social circle, you can't come to my party, which is not the same as institutional racism, which is creating a caste-like group of people. So the latter was never part of this process. And to make it seem like there was some sort of material consequences to colorism instigated by light-skinned black people, no less, it just did not happen. And to present it as if it did, because I know in some Caribbean countries that did happen, right, where you had, for example, I, um, I know that there were certain occupations that you couldn't have if you were dark-skinned. There was reserved for light-skinned people only. But that wasn't the U.S. And I think we need to be clear about how that happened. And it wouldn't have taken away the story, I think, to be more honest about that. So it's true that you did have light-skinned black people who were disproportionate of the black middle class at that time. But that wasn't because they were operating as a class to keep dark-skinned people out. It's because they had white ancestors and benefactors that allowed them to access the education, uh, money for businesses and self-employment and the social networks to access white philanthropists. So it wasn't an exclusively middle class, um, exclusively light skinned group. It was just disproportionate. So you have Du Bois and others at that time who write about the wide variation of skin tone, which of course we know is due to the European ancestry of the vast majority of black Americans that resulted from rape and coercive sexual relationships during slavery. So Henry Louis Gates talks about the average African-American being 24% European. And that's where that comes from. I think even to present it as at one time you had this pure group is completely erroneous. So I know that black Americans, we root our identity in African heritage. And we know that in the US race, a predictor for wealth, political beliefs and voting behavior, but it's not ever meant that we were 100% African ancestry, although many people think that. So that's a common belief. And they conflate race and ancestry, which is another conversation. But I just want to be clear that that depiction then is what creates the disingenuous presentation of black life at that time. So um, another comment quickly um, on class in 1910 is that hair was a status symbol. So I don't think that it was ever presented in that way. It was just another kind of buying into the PR of Madam CJ's. Oh, it's just about having healthy hair please. We later look at her spokesperson. She chooses this light skinned, long haired black girl. So it's, you know, it was clearly about that aspirational look to have long hair. Cause we all know how I feel about that. I never wear my own hair. I'm always <laughs> it's so sad. Always wearing extensions because it's like, ah, if it's not to my hip, it's not really good enough, is it? And you could see that then. So I think they didn't talk about or even present it as being a symbol of uh, conspicuous consumption, or more importantly for that time, thinking about the jobs that black women have or had, right? You have the vast majority as domestic workers or farm labor is to say, having this hair makes it look like I'm not a domestic or agricultural worker. Instead, I can look the part of the very small minority of black women who can avoid that type of work. And to me, that would have been a better way to present it because it was also bizarrely, I mean, the strangest thing you ever heard that almost this idea that black women like 
because that's the the story we give it today, right? It's, oh, we have to straighten our hair to look professional. And that's what black women were doing in 1910. Black women weren't working professional jobs in 1910. What planet are people on? Yes, you had a few teachers, but generally we're talking about domestic workers and agricultural farm labor in 1910. What they tried to pretend in the film was that the women who worked for her selling the products, mind you. So we're talking about MLMs here because this is, this is after Avon. So Avon has already popularized this model, right? So we need to be very clear about this. Like that was an old model. So we know these aren't jobs, right? And don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that there aren't a few people who make money from MLMs. Well, no, get me correct because the vast majority don't, right? But this film tried to present it as if it was allowing the women who sold her products to make all this money. It's like, is everyone crazy? You're selling cheap products to black women. So these, these aren't Gucci bags because it's spoken of as, oh, they, make, they can make $5 a day, but that's what skilled white male labor was making at the time. So I say BS. And that's the problem now. That's why people are so strong believers in it. It's like, oh, we had it at one time. We never had it. And we need to understand why, though. That's the story of why it didn't exist as opposed to pretending like it did. So that's Madam CJ for me. So Strong Island 2017 is a true crime documentary film directed by Yance Ford about the murder of his brother. So to quote from the film website, Strong Island chronicles the arc of a family across history, geography, and tragedy from the racial segregation of the Jim Crow South to the promise of New York City, from the presumed safety of middle-class suburbs to the maelstrom of an unexpected violent death. This is the story of the Ford family and how their lives were shaped by the enduring shadow of race in America. A deeply intimate and meditative film, Strong Island asks what can one do when the grief of loss is entwined with historical injustice, and how one grapples with the complicity of silence, which combined a family in an imitation of life and a nation with a false sense of justice. So, so this one is in the Black Lives Matter collection, and this film is so moving, and it really grapples with the emotion of pain compounded by the lack of justice and the lack of recognition of the injustice, right? So in this film, it is about, you know, her brother is murdered and the grand jury won't bring charges against the man who murdered her brother. What's interesting, given the theme of black middle class, is I think that was such an important part of the story is how they ended up in that suburb in the first place. So I think this deserved more attention and it wasn't given it. A lot of people have focused on uh, director Yance Ford, who was a transgender man nominated for the award. And it's like, well, I, I wanted more attention given to the story as opposed to Yance Ford being a first, right? Um, so this suburb that they moved into was really, it seems, a planned community. So Mrs. Ford, who's the mother, explains that the purpose of this was really to attract the black bourgeoisie, right? So you want civil servants to live in enclaves set aside for black residents to live in Long Island. And this is segregated, though, from the racially hostile surrounding white areas. So his friend is featured in the film and he talks about that right that that was the place of safety because you really couldn't go in other places and this is the uh we're talking 70s 80s here so mrs ford didn't like being in the segregated enclave but she wanted home ownership which for her was not only the american dream but it represented upward mobility and security for her children now mrs ford she graduated I and mean, she was ultimately a principal uh, but she 
of course, went to college to be a teacher before she became a principal. And the important thing about that was her mother was an agricultural worker. So she talked about her mother picking tobacco. It is so important because timing is everything. And you have a huge shift from coming from parents who no education, working for nothing and their children having college degrees. I mean, and that's huge to happen just in one generation. And now you've seen a shift in the other direction where we no longer have those opportunities. Um, That generation of people who through government policies and being forced, these civil servant jobs being forced to be available to them, were able to have that. But it was really exposed to be a fallacy, right? That there really was no escaping the consequence of being black in America. So race is a relationship and you can't escape it. And I think a lot of people thought they could through owning a home or moving to a suburb. And I think this false sense of security that black middle-class believe they have in enclaves then and now is a theme that we'll see later in black privilege. So I would have liked to see that explored more, but I did so appreciate the way that was given context because so often it's really talked about in a positive way, like, oh, we have black suburbs. In fact, my friend in London sent me this chat on, uh, I want to say it was on Twitter, but it could have been on Instagram, you know, some social media where these black British people were talking about, oh, we would love to have a place in London like that. And they don't really understand what that is. This explains what that is. It's not really a black suburb in the sense of you have this space of black affluence. And this is the problem is, is that's what people think it is. And they don't really know anything about the history of those kinds of spaces. So the third film is Skin. So the tagline for Skin 2019 is, quote, on a quest to find beauty in all complexions, actress Beverly Naya travels to her home country of Nigeria and explores colorism's impact on society, unquote. So I wrote the review Beauty is in 20, um, that was a 2014 documentary about the attitudes and opinions of black British women and men on the meaning of black beauty. So this film is similar and it also makes links with Nigeria and skin bleaching, which according to the film, 70% of Nigerian women are bleaching. If you look in the US, we have these staples, which I don't think they're published anymore, but Ebony and Jet. And when you look at the Ebony and Jets from 1950s, for example, they have all these ads for skin lightening. So when I came of age, though, in the 90s, of course, those were no longer there, right? For God's sakes. So I didn't realize that it was still a thing. It wasn't until I got older and started buying Asian skincare products that I saw that it was so prevalent. And then it wasn't until I saw Beauty Is that I knew it was a thing. And I was really traumatized by that. I thought, oh, my God, like people do that. I'm really digressing. Okay, so I do think it's admirable to make a film about colorism in Nigeria and to give voice to everyday people who use these products as well as the people who market and manufacture them. And I must say that that was a fresh take on it because she did talk to people who actually were involved in trying to sell them and making them. And I think that was really the film's USP, which was not focusing exclusively on personal experiences. However... I think that class was glossed over as it always is, and colonialism and post-colonialism got no more than a passing mention, which is also typical in these films. 
So I'm not sure how we can understand colorism as an expression of class without some grounding in post-colonial Nigeria and its class structure. So for example, we learn that Ms. Naya's maternal grandfather was in a government position that allowed him both a pension and the ability to build a nice home for his family, but not the consequences of what that meant materially for her family in terms of their class position in Nigeria and how this allowed for her parents' migration to the UK. Instead, we're just introduced to this transnational group of media personalities without any explanation of their class status or how we can understand them or situate them. And I say this because I think it really was an interesting film, this topic, but this was a glaring omission. And one of the talking heads was Brobriski. Oh, I apologize. I'm butchering this. I know. She said the name many times and I never wrote it phonetically. So Brobriski is a Nigerian socialite who sells skin lightening products. So her explanation of why people use the products is she's very clear that it allows you to realize your ambition. And she lays out clear reasons such as upward mobility, self-esteem, social acceptance, and status, as well as celebrity culture. And this is where it matters because self-esteem is one thing, but it is something completely different if there's an economic payoff or material benefit. So I think it's a completely different ball game if having lighter skins means that you have access to occupations you wouldn't otherwise have or opportunities or marriage. So everything in this documentary is anecdotal. We never have any numbers. So I'm really left knowing, not knowing if there was just a perception of having opportunity through skin lightening or if it was just building self-esteem or if this was just restricted to the media industry. So that celebrity culture that rewards skin lightening with attention and celebrity endorsements becomes a myth that distracts from the vast wealth inequality in the country. So I was thinking as an, an analogy, right? In the U.S., we have the myth of meritocracy. And one of the functions of this myth is that it distracts us from examining entrenched racial and class inequalities. And so we have the American dream that works that, right? So this American dream allows us to believe if we work hard, we can make it to distract from the truth, right? What the numbers tell us. So I'm wondering if skin lightening also underlies these myths of opportunity. So if you have light skin, you can have money and status too, or skin lightening makes you feel like you have a chance to be one of the super rich and then you can live vicariously through them. So according to Oxfam, Nigeria has the largest economy in Africa, but they're at the bottom of their 2017 inequality index. So there's a difference between Given this inequality, right, there's a difference between an elite person lightening their skin for jobs that they only had access to anyway versus skin lightening in the belief that you'll have an opportunity to those jobs, which you really don't have. But it helps you to believe that you do, right, because you look the part. So I'm just saying that everyone that she interviewed in the market who lightened for opportunities didn't look like they really had those opportunities. And she didn't explore it. She just kind of allow people to say, oh, that's why I do it. Or she let them get away with saying, oh, I'm not skin lightening. I'm just toning, you know, <laughs> and they look crazy. I hate to put that out there because I would never want to throw black women under the bus, but she doesn't explore it. And then of course she ends it with the same way they ended beauty is, which it then becomes about the individual having self-esteem and loving themselves for who they are. Boo. <laughs> like, 
Individuals don't solve structural problems. Okay, so the fourth film is I Am Not Your Negro. So this is a nut from 2016. And this is another Black Lives Matter collection documentary narrated by the venerable Samuel L. Jackson, which is based on the work of writer James Baldwin and his unfinished memoir on the intersecting lives and approaches to black liberation of Malcolm X, Martin Luther King, and Medgar Evers, who were, of course, all assassinated, which left a void in black politics going forward. So I saw this in the cinema back in April 2017, and I wrote a film review, but I don't think it was ever published. But at any rate, Um, I watched it again. It was certainly worth watching again. And I enjoyed it the first time more so because I didn't have or I had not had much exposure to James Baldwin. So I studied race and it was from a social science perspective. I didn't do the humanity. So I never really read his work. And it's much to my shame, but I did not realize that he was a public intellectual. So I enjoyed the documentary so much that after I saw it the first time, I binged watched his interviews, lectures, and debates on YouTube. But when I watched it this time, I did hear something else, as you often do when you watch something a second time. And I thought more about James Baldwin's class position as a black public public intellectual and how... um, you know, how class played out in the black community. So, so I totally missed it last time, but this time I heard the quote that he didn't want to join the NAACP because they were proponents of black class distinctions or rather illusions. And I think this was an attitude that many activists had at the time that isn't really talked about. So unfortunately, um, I only got through the introduction and first chapter of the 2014 book, The Rebellious Life of Mrs. Rosa Parks. And Rosa Parks' husband, who had a high school diploma, which was a big deal in the 1930s, refused to join the NAACP for the same reason, right? He said, they're bougie. They're only out for themselves. I'm not going to be part of that group. So it made me think of the political classes of black society and the differences between those that were aspirational and wanted black capitalism and those that wanted to eradicate a racialized class system inside it with the black masses of working people. So I think we can still see that today uh, between black professionals who promote more individualism and profit off black aspiration and those who put the economic position of the group first beyond their own interests, which I think you can see in the push for reparations, for example. So it's worth a watch, worth a watch, definitely should watch it. So the final film is Black Privilege from 2019. Black Privilege is a 2019 feature film about a fictional Chicago black enclave that resists the attempt to devalue the property in their community by moving in low income residents. So overall, the film is interesting because it explores regentrification and I really couldn't think of another film that I've seen that's written a story about this particular social process. So this was also explored in Mary Patillo's 2010 book Black on the Block, The Politics of Race and Class in the City, which explores this process of regentrification in Chicago's North Kenwood neighborhood. So essentially what it is, just to define it, is it's a poor neighborhood that's besieged (laughs) by black middle-class homeowners who want to regenerate the area with local businesses and government services such as parked, paved roads, garbage collection, that type of thing. So this is different from gentrification, which government... So the difference is gentrification is a government investment in whiteness in the form of white residential areas. 
and that gives a place its value. But being black, you can't create the same sort of value. So Black on the Block is about this, that it's really about the political struggle between the old and new residents. And the new residents, the struggle is they want them out to try to create this process, but you can't because you're black. And gentrification is about an investment in whiteness. The story in this film, uh, with the black enclave is that they've already done this, right? So they've turned a neglected area into their black middle-class enclave. And the story opens with them learning that the city is closing down a housing projects and they're relocating the residents to their enclave. Now this isn't done to benefit or help the public housing residents. So it isn't an attempt to move them to a desirable area so that these residents also have access to amenities and city services, but it's just an attempt to devalue the property in the enclave so that white developers can buy it up and then they can either split the property into smaller units and rent it out, or they can sell it at a profit to families that can't afford to buy anywhere else. And that's the, the also the key difference between gentrification and this is gentrification is they move somewhere to you know fix it up and make money right and they're, they're going to change the neighborhood but the problem with well not the problem with but in terms of regentrification the black middle class moving into these neglected areas is that they can't live other places right it's like they are shut out of other places because they are black and so this becomes an option for them which they conveniently avoid so when you interview people and you can Mary Patillo explores that in her book. They have every reason except that fact of why they moved to that area. And that's the truth, right? That is the consequence of blackness is that you don't live where you can afford. You live where they say you can live. You can't escape that, right? So what it brought up for me, which of course is uh, very interesting, is that one of my favorite satires is the animated series, The Boondocks. And in this episode, The Itis, it illustrates this very point. So in this series, there's this character, Ed Wensler, and he's a capitalist and a descendant of the town's founder. And what he decides to do is invest in a soul food restaurant to replace the juice bar that he owns. And is presented as the soul food restaurant will give the protagonist a business opportunity, right? To live his dream of having a soul food restaurant, which of course his grandson points out, I never heard you talk about this. And all of a sudden it was a lifelong dream. The juice bar is across the street from a park that Ed Wunstler has been desperate to buy from the city. And what happens is once he opens the soul food restaurant, it causes a shift in the businesses in the area. So a footlocker, for example, replaces an upscale business. So the neighborhood goes downhill, which devalues the property, and it allows Ed Wunstler to buy the park, which was his motivation. That was his intention all along, right? So the commentary is that on the surface, something can seem like an investment in ca black capitalism, but the reality is there is no such thing. Since Ed Wunstler owned both businesses, the juice bar and then the subsequent soul food restaurant, and ultimately it was just a tool for him to expand his real estate portfolio through the acquisition of the park. So unfortunately, the, the writer of Black Privilege doesn't have this analysis. And instead what the film does is promote this belief in black capitalism and self-help. So I think this is the same theme we've seen in the other films that I saw this week because it shows the politics of black middle-classness and how it can easily go astray. Now I did like that the film does challenge this false dichotomy between the deserving and undeserving poor. So the for example, one of the project residents that moves in talks about the fact that they're discriminating against their own and that they can bring something of value and something that they bring is 
which is what they had in the projects was a community garden. So it's like urban farming to not only uh, improve healthy eating, right? But they somehow had a business in that as well. You know, a very small business, but, you know, we can use the produce that we uh, grow and sell it. But still, there's this strong message of self-help. And I think because of that strong message of self-help, what's missing for me is the reality that their enclave was always precarious. So it wasn't the residents that posed the threat. It's structural racism that the threat was always there. And they just thought it wasn't, but it was there all along. But I did like it because this is the only feature film I've seen that talks about this specific issue in, in, a, in a way that they're bringing it to the political space because otherwise it's kind of left as a, you know, a, an interpersonal story. And I think they tried to do something else with this film, even though I don't agree with it. I can appreciate that they did try to do something different. And it's, you know, back to what we talked about before with um, skin, you can't solve institutional racism through individual self-help efforts. And I think the, on, the film definitely presented the enclave residents as, you know, as heroes because they wanted to create the first of several enclaves for other black people who wanted to, you know, quote unquote, work hard or quote unquote, wanted more for themselves. Their words, not mine. And it's, it's those myths that really do drive the film, which I can't agree with politically, uh, and, but I still did like the film, you know, still sexy people doing sexy things. It's always nice to see that. But so that is it. Yeah. So that's the five of them. Thank you so much, Socorro. Quite a lot of emphasis on the first two films, but, you know, obviously there won't there won't be as much to say about each one. So as I said, future episodes will probably be more discussion based and we'll decide as and when how the format will look and what we'll discuss. You can follow us on Twitter at MyDialorama and that's probably for now the best way you can leave a comment or feedback or even suggest something you'd like us to discuss. Thank you very much for listening.